This entire chapter is about Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. In fact, we see that here in Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the inland regions and came to Ephesus. Ephesus was a very important strategic city for the gospel to take hold in. It was the confluence of many nations and countries at that time. Many people passed through Ephesus in order to get even to other places. So it was an amazing cosmopolitan place in the ancient world. A large city, very large. And it contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Diana, or as it's referred to here in Acts 19, the temple of Artemis. If you ever get the chance to just do a little research on the temple of Diana in Ephesus, many people through what we have found left about that temple believe that that could have been one of the most magnificent, if not the most magnificent structure that was ever constructed. And it was in Ephesus. So obviously there were people from all over the world that could make it to Ephesus that would come there as well. So Ephesus, I can't stress it enough, was such a strategic place for Paul to be. When you think about the lives that Paul touched there, then we're going to go in all kinds of different directions and be an influence in their nations and in their countries as they were just passing through Ephesus on their way, either back home or somewhere else. We know a lot about Ephesus. One of the letters of Paul in the New Testament is to the church at Ephesus. We also believe that Paul's letter of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus were actually addressed to Ephesus as well. It's also very possible that 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation were also sent to the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus, the city, and the church in Ephesus play a really prominent role throughout the New Testament. And so what we are seeing here in Acts 19 is the very beginning, the seeds, if you will, of what one day is going to become a very strong church that is established in Ephesus. How does it get started? And what does God begin to do in this great ancient city of Ephesus? Well, as I read and studied and meditated on this chapter, there were several things that God was teaching me that I wanted to share with you that I think we learn through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. The first one is this. Again, Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the inland region and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples there. Key word in the New Testament, the word disciple. 
And it teaches us this. God always wants us to go deeper. When we think of what it means to be a disciple, we are thinking of the concept of one who's never satisfied with where they are, but always one who is wanting to learn and grow and increase and go deeper. The reason why I'm so in tune with this concept right now is because this daily devotion that I'm going to begin in 2015 is all about digging deeper into what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as I have studied this more than I've ever had in my life, I just keep coming back to that whole mindset of going deeper, gaining more. That's what, a, that's what separates a disciple of Jesus Christ from a Christian. You see, a disciple is one who's continually growing, continually learning, who has a teachable spirit, who wants to always go deeper, who again is never satisfied with where their understanding of God and their knowledge of God is, but always wants more. This is why Jesus and why the New Testament talks a lot about uh, hunger and thirst in relationship to being a disciple. Because it, it's about, you know, having that continual hunger and thirst for more of God. And that's really, in essence, what a disciple is. But then you'll notice about these particular disciples in Ephesus, something very unique, something that doesn't happen today. Today, when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, I believe immediately they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no time gap between a person accepting Christ and the Holy Spirit entering them. But the book of Acts, remember, is a transitional book transitioning us from the Old Testament economy and way of doing things to the New Testament. Which is why I tell people and have told people for years and have taught, do not use the book of Acts as your sole foundation for doctrine because of the nature of this book. There are things that are happening here that then are not the norm in the rest of the New Testament. Again, because it's transitioning. Things haven't settled out yet. And what we are going to now find with these particular disciples in Ephesus is, even though they are disciples of Jesus Christ, again, like Apollos that we learned last week, they have a very limited understanding, only knowing John's baptism, and... They haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit yet, much less been indwelt by Him yet. So Paul's going to take care of that. So notice, begin picking it up in verse 2. And he found these disciples there and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
by Paul asking that question, he even understood that the norm even in the book of Acts was, if you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul later on even told the Romans in Romans chapter 8 that if a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him, then he's not even a child of God. So Paul understands the importance of making sure that the Holy Spirit and belief obviously usually go together. Notice their reply. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Obviously, they have a lot more understanding and knowledge and growth. But the fact that they're already disciples has set them on the proper path that at least they've got the heart and the mind and the will to want to know more and to want to grow. So Paul said, into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism, they replied. In other words, it was a baptism unto repentance. That wasn't sufficient. They needed the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. After we focus on the fact that God always wants us to go deeper, which is found in the word disciple, we also then are learning something here about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And that is the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. Or the difference that the Holy Spirit can make in our lives. I mean, you can obviously understand what a difference it would have been even for these disciples to now have the Holy Spirit of God. God indwelling them and living within them. What a difference He makes in our lives. And we know that the Holy Spirit is present because if He lives within us, there will be evidence that He lives within us. Just like there was here. They immediately began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. There will always be evidence that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Other evidences, obviously, are the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The gifts of the Spirit are evidences that the Spirit of God lives within us. And there is no way that a human being can be invaded by God inside and they not know it. If a human being has God living within them, you and I will know it. We will have a knowledge of it. In fact, Paul even reminds us of this in the book of Romans as well. That the Spirit of God will bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit makes an awful big difference in our lives. And yet, what this was challenging me with was this. How often throughout my day, my week, my month, my year would the Holy Spirit be conspicuously absent and my life would just go on? And I think what God was reminding me of is I I didn't come to live within you through my spirit and not be an integral part 
of every part of your life. God wants to make a difference in our lives by giving us His Holy Spirit and having Him live within us so that, again, we truly never are alone and never walk alone because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us at all times. And as Paul teaches other places, He's our seal. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He's our guarantee of all the things that God promised that would one day come. And and God wants to make a difference in our lives through the Holy Spirit, which is why, again, throughout the New Testament, we have commands to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit and let the Spirit take over our lives and control our every thought, our every action. Because that's why God gives us His Holy Spirit. So I was challenged by this, being reminded of this group of disciples that hadn't even had the Holy Spirit yet. To let the Holy Spirit make a difference in my life every day. If God, through His Spirit, is living in me, then let Him Make a difference. Let Him be evident. Let Him be seen by others that God truly lives within me. This is something we learn, I believe, through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Something else, and I'll come back to it in a little bit. Notice in verse 7, this wasn't a big group. This was a small band of committed believers. Twelve men and probably a few women. But it wasn't a very big group of believers at first at Ephesus. But they were a committed group. And they were going to make a difference for Christ. Not because of their numbers. But because of their commitment and their faithfulness. I hope that will encourage you as well. God doesn't need a big group to make an impact. God just needs a committed group. To make a difference. Beginning then in verse 8. Something else we learn is that people can become hardened to the word of God. People can become hardened to the word of God as they hear it. Notice in Paul's ministry it says, So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke out fearlessly for three months, addressing and convincing men them, about the kingdom of God. The implication in verse 9 is that the people who have become stubborn and refused to believe had been part of this group for three months. So it's not that they haven't heard the word of God, it's just the opposite. As they've heard the word of God, they continue to harden themselves to it. This is what the word stubborn means in the original language. It means to become hard or hardened. And we need to remember that. It's actually very dangerous for any of us to expose or to be exposed to the Word of God and not yield or comply to it. Because every time you and I, as human beings, hear the Word of God and are exposed to it and reject it, that hardens us. Think about that. Every time we hear the Word of God 
and we refuse to comply or yield or surrender to it, we can become hardened. So that then the next time God seeks to speak to us, that it can get a little bit harder to get through. And that's why you have people today who can be, again, exposing themselves or sitting in a spiritual environment where they're hearing the Word of God, but nothing is ever changing in their life. Or they eventually get to the point where they no longer want to come in a spiritual environment where they hear the Word of God because they really don't want to be convicted anymore. They don't want to be challenged anymore. They don't want to grow anymore or go deeper. They have no desire to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so they shut off the Word of God and they either just sit through it but never yield to it or they just leave. In fact, we might get through all this tonight and we might not. Wow. I'm taking a long time, longer than I would normally, huh? Go figure. Keep your finger there in Acts 19 and go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Let me show you this. Even with disciples. Can a a person cease to be a disciple? I believe they can. Because to me, a disciple is someone who continues to grow and learn and whatever, and if, if someone decides, I don't want that anymore, then they don't, they're not characterized as a disciple. They can be a Christian, but not a disciple. And notice, in John chapter 6, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus is teaching some hard things. Really hard things. In fact, beginning in verse 59, Jesus said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of his disciples, when they heard these things, said, this is a difficult saying. And Jesus went on to tell them some difficult things. And so notice what happens in verse 66. After this, after what? After Jesus was teaching them things that they really didn't want to hear anymore. Many of his disciples quit following him and did not accompany him any longer. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says, you don't want to go away too, do you? Jesus lost people as he taught. Because he didn't stop teaching the truth. And there comes times even with disciples where they don't want to hear the truth anymore. And therefore they're, I'm done. For instance, in our day, we would say, sometimes Christians stop coming to church. (laughs) If it's a church that teaches the word. Because they don't want to hear truth anymore. They they don't want to have to deal with what God's trying to get them to deal with. So they just stop coming. Or stop being as faithful as they used to be. Folks, this isn't a new phenomenon. This happened during Jesus' ministry. He kept teaching people the truth. And they got to the point where they didn't want to hear it. And notice, it doesn't say a few of his disciples left. It says many of his disciples quit following him. It's exactly what was happening in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Paul was teaching them the truth, and it got to the point where they continued to shut off the voice of God, and they became hardened. We must beware, even as disciples, 
of ones who at one time in our life or season of our life were growing and wanted to grow, that we don't get to the point where we, as we then start to hear the word of God and continue to be confronted with the truth of God, get to the point where we want to shut it off. Because it can happen to any of us. And it's something that we learn from Acts chapter 19. I love this next part back in Acts 19 though. Notice in verse 9, but when some were stubborn and refused to believe, reviling the way before the congregation, he left them and took the disciples with him, addressing them every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Notice what this teaches us and what we learn. That sometimes there's the necessity of resourcefulness. Notice what Paul was doing here. This is why I love it. He was ministering out of a school. You notice that? The lecture hall of Tyrannus was a school. So Paul left the synagogue and went to this other school and ministered there and taught people out of this school for a couple of years. He didn't allow what was happening there to stop him. He became resourceful and found another place to meet. It just reminds us... Though we don't have our own church yet and our own building yet, God doesn't want our ministry to in any way be limited because of resources. God wants us to understand as long as we've got Him, we've got the only resource we really need. And sometimes God, you know, we, we run up against obstacles and stuff. God wants us to be resourceful in and through Him and figure other ways out. Not to just throw up our hands and go, well, that didn't work, so we'll just give up. Sometimes it takes being resourceful and figuring out that there's another way to do it. And that's what we see here with Paul. He couldn't or didn't want to meet there anymore, but he found a school that he could teach out of. And so the Bible says, verse 10, this went on for two years so that all who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Cool. I love it. We have something in common with Paul. Not a lot we have in common with Paul, but that's one thing. We, we both minister out of a school. Next, verse 11. We learn that God is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think. Because this verse reminds us that God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. So that when even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his body were brought to the sick... Their diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, obviously, this wasn't the norm. This wasn't ordinary, but it reminds us, don't limit God. Our God is a God that nothing is impossible for. And God wants to do extraordinary things through and by us, just like he did Paul. Now, again, it might not be the exact thing as it is here, But what God wants to teach us here and what he wants us to learn from this is exactly what Paul said in the book of Ephesians. He wants us to get to a point where we believe that God is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think. Do we believe that? And do we believe that God is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think by us or through us. We need to have that kind of faith. 
Again, not focused on us, but on our extraordinary God that can do extraordinary things. By very common, ordinary human beings. We also learn here in this passage that we must have the right or authority to minister in Jesus' name. Notice beginning in verse 13. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were possessed by evil spirits, saying, I solemnly warn you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Notice, not by whom we preach, because we don't really know Jesus. But we're going to use his name, right? Now, I love this. They were seven sons of a man named Sceva, a Jewish high priest. But notice what the evil spirit says to them. I know about Jesus. The word know there means to be thoroughly acquainted. The evil spirit is thoroughly acquainted with Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and I'm acquainted with Paul. This means to fix one's attention on. In other words, this evil spirit knew about Paul too. Why? Because Paul was a threat. But notice what the evil spirit said about them. Who are you? You know what that tells me? That the spirit world knows those who are a threat to them, but really doesn't know those who are not a threat to them. And that's why they obviously know who Jesus is, and they also know who Paul is. But notice, the man who was possessed by the evil spirit jumped on them and beat them all into submission. He prevailed against them so that they fled from that house naked and wounded. They did not have the right or the authority to minister in Jesus' name because they were not followers of Jesus Christ. They didn't even know Jesus. As they invoked the name of Jesus, remember they said, we're invoking the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. But the Bible teaches us that if we're going to use the name of Jesus, we must have the right and authority to do so. That's why John writes in John 1.12, to those who believed in him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And when Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples and to all disciples who would follow him, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now you go in my authority. So for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are one of his children and who are following him, we do have the right and the authority from him to use his name. But these seven men did not. And because of that, they paid a high price for trying to use a name that they had no right or authority to use. It is a privilege to know the name of Jesus, to know Jesus, and to be able to use Jesus' name and to minister and serve in His name. I hope we remember that. This passage also teaches us not to take the reality of spiritual warfare lightly, doesn't it? It reminds us of the reality of evil spirits. It reminds us to not play around with the demonic world. 
It is not something for us even as Christians who know Jesus to dabble in. As I have told Christians for years, everything God wants us to know about Satan and the demonic world is in the Bible. Anything more in that is unnecessary. Don't dabble in it. It will only suck you down a black hole that many people have destroyed their lives because of it. We only need to know what the Bible teaches us about the spirit world. That's all we need. That's sufficient. And we must not take the reality of spiritual warfare lightly. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians to put on the armor of God every day and be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We see obviously that these men did not take seriously what the spirit world could do to them when they messed around in an area that they should never have messed around in. This passage also teaches us that the authority of God's Word will be tested in our lives. The authority of God's Word will be tested in our lives. Because of what was happening here, Ephesus was a place of, of occultic activity, great occultic activity. And yet, because of what was exposed here, people began to realize what they were really involved with, and they began to repent of it and believe in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 17, This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear came over them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Many of those who had believed then came forward confessing and making their deeds known. And large numbers of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them up in the presence of everyone. And when the value of the books were added up, it was found to be total 50,000 silver coins. It's a lot of value. And it says, in this way, the word of the Lord continued to grow in power and to prevail. The word power there means force and authority. And the reason I say that what this passage is teaching us is that the authority of God's word will be tested in our lives is because just as these people saw what was happening to those seven men, and then heard the word of God through Paul and his missionary team, what was the force and authority of the word going to have on them? Were they, in spite of the value of these magical books and occultic books, were they going to hold on to their old life and hold on to these books? Were these more books more valuable and precious to them? Or was what they were hearing through the Word of God going to carry ultimate authority in their lives? And we see what happened here. The authority of the Word of God is what prevailed. And because of that, they were willing to part with their old life and their old ways, even burning these things and totally divorcing themselves and distancing themselves from their old life. Why? Because the Word of God had authority. And throughout our lives, many times God will test the authority of His Word in our lives. 
When he brings his truth to bear, and then we have to make a decision. Am I going to submit? Is the, is the word of God my full and final authority? And whatever God says in his word, that's it? Or am I going to try to, to excuse or rationalize or keep doing what I'm doing even though the Word of God says I shouldn't or I, I, I keep avoiding doing what the Word of God says I should do. Where does that fall? And we learn this here in this passage. How the Word of God had authority over their lives. It, it does us no good to sit under the Word of God and to hear it and to grow in our understanding of the Word of God if it carries no weight or authority in our lives. This is part of what we struggle with today, even in Christianity, with so-called Christians. They want to be spiritual, but not necessarily biblical. And what we're trying to do here at the Oasis and what I'm trying to teach us all is that it's no good to be spiritual if we're not biblical. That's what counts. Because in a sense, before God, we can't be spiritual unless we're biblical. And it's not just a matter of knowing the Word of God. It's, it's a matter of letting the Word of God rule. And have that force and authority in our lives. We also learn the importance of decisiveness and setting goals in verse 21. Now after all these things had taken place, Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem. Passing through Macedonia and Achaia, he said, And after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The word resolved means to be absolutely decisive. God doesn't want us to live indecisively all the time throughout our life. He wants us to get to a place where we have a decisiveness, especially in setting both short-term and long-term goals, which is exactly what we see here. The short-term was, I'm going to visit uh, Macedonia and Achaia. The long-term goal, I'm going to go to Rome. We need to learn to set short and long-term goals for our lives, especially for our spiritual lives, because most of the time, if not all the time, if we don't plan on doing something, it doesn't get done. If we don't set a particular time or, or carve out something, then it usually, you know, all the intentions in the world doesn't make it so or make it happen. And so we've got to be decisive and we've got to set those goals. We also learn in verse 22 that Paul never ministered alone because we learn that he sent two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he himself stayed on for a while in the province of Asia. Paul always had his assistants, always had his helpers. Paul never ministered alone. We also learn that this small group of committed believers that I referenced earlier was affecting their community. How do we know this? Verse 23. At that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. A way of describing the, the lifestyle of committed believers. 
the conduct that they exhibited. And what this is telling us is that, that these committed believers, as small as they were, were beginning to affect their community and their outlook on the temple of Diana or Artemis and, and their occultic practices and their own lifestyle. They were beginning to influence their culture, which is what God wants His people to do. He wants us to be so committed to Him that it just naturally is an outflow that we will positively, spiritually affect those around us. And that there will be transformation and change and a different way of looking at things through our ministry and through our lives and through us getting the Word of God out to people. And we see that happening here. We also learn here, though, that God and money are often in conflict. Because notice, then we begin to be informed in verse 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought, brought a great deal of business, gained profit to the craftsmen. He gathered these men together along with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity, our wealth, our riches comes from this business. And you see in here that this Paul has persuaded and turned away large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but practically in all the province of Asia by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. And he basically goes on to say, it's going to hurt our business. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have things or to be wealthy or to be rich. That's not what this is saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there will again be times where God and money will conflict. Which is why Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. If, if money is the sole focus of my life and, and the decisions and choices that I make in life all based on the bottom line of money then obviously that's going to come in conflict sometimes with God and what He wants for us. God wants us to make our choices and decisions based upon our allegiance to Him. And if it works out to where it, you know, we profit from it, great. But if it doesn't, great. Because ultimately we're not to be living for money or material gain, we are to be living for God and to grow in Him. And many times, God and money will come in conflict, just like it did here. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 27, there is a danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, will be found to be worthless, but he also said that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. Woohoo! That temple's been gone for quite a while. Is the world just really, you know, do you hear people today say, ah, I really miss the temple of Artemis. What do, we, what do we do without this temple? You know, I'm not saying people don't worship idols today, but I don't think you hear anybody going around saying, you know, they're erecting a temple or a church or something to the, the goddess Diana because they miss her so much. 
But again, that's the attitude of people caught up in idolatry. Which leads me to this next point. I'll close with this tonight. Here's a real challenge. Because we learn in this passage also the passion of idolatry. Notice it says in verse 28, when they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In fact, down in verse 34, notice when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for about two hours. Get what's happening here. They are worshiping for two hours an idol. And they're more passionate about their idol, Diana, and her temple than many Christians are in worshiping the true, real God. When was the last time Christians got together and say, let's get together and shout about our God and praise Him for two hours? But these idolaters in Ephesus, they had enough passion for their idolatry that they were willing in the square of Ephesus to put on a worship service for Diana for two hours. No problem. When you think about our society today and the zeal and the fervor and the passion that people have for other things besides God. Again, like I was saying Sunday, nothing against shopping. I go shopping, but when you view on TV this time of year that people are willing to stand in line and, and stay up late and get up early and, and go through all that for material things, and yet you can't find that same passion and fervor and enthusiasm to come to church? Where's our value? And that's exactly what we're challenged with here. We as the people of God need to truly be as fervent fervent and passionate and zealous about our God and worshiping Him as the people are who get all excited about things that a million years from now won't last. And I, hey, just like, I'll use this as an example. I love sports. But again, when you watch fans of sports teams and whatever, willing to sit out in the cold for hours and scream their heads off about a football game. But you can't get Christians to come for 15 or 20 minutes on a Sunday and lift up their voices to the Lord? These are the things we learn from Acts 19. God's Word was growing in power and prevailing because people were saying, God, if your word says it, that's my authority. That's what God wants to do today. He doesn't want to just get his word out there. He wants to use it to transform and change our lives. He wants it to be the authority of our life. Our standard of rule and practice and how we live. May God's word continue to grow in power and prevail at the oasis and in our individual lives every day. Let's pray.
God, we thank You again for Your Word. And we pray, God, that as we hear Your Word, as we learn Your Word, as we grow in Your Word, that God, again, it won't be just more and more knowledge that we accumulate. But that God will learn to lay our lives down before it. That we will comply, that we will yield, that we will submit to what Your Word says. We've seen tonight, even in this chapter, that the authority of Your Word will be tested in our lives at times. Help us, Lord, to pass that test when those times come. God, again, thank You for this group here tonight, this faithful group of folks who come out at this very busy time of the year. But thank You that, God, they keep this as a priority. Bless them for it, God. Enrich them as only You can. And bring us back for a couple more Tuesday nights in this year, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before I let you go, just a couple things. So next week, the 9th we meet, the 16th we meet, but we are off on the 23rd and the 30th. And then we'll come back the first Tuesday in January. So we've got just two more Tuesdays before the year ends. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next week.